0: this is how i get into you this is like i'm like oh so jesse um do some research on this stuff and you know we'll figure it all out and it'll be good it'll be a good episode and then by the time i get all your notes i'm like okay so canada day is what we're discussing
1: today i don't even Um, call it that it's it's fucking july first (laughs) same day as every other (laughs) yes anyways yeah yeah. and Welcome to a very special episode, Feeling Fine. It's episode 69, The Weed Number. And it's me, Jesse. And before I throw it over to my beloved co-host, quick swear warning, content warning. Mm -hmm. We're going to be talking about a very lewd, crude, and rude genre of metal. There might even be some tood involved. As such, we're going to swear throughout. And without further ado i want to throw it over to my main man in the booth chance what's up buddy
0: oh not much man um i must say that researching this topic this week has put the biggest smile on my face not gonna lie yes um i've and been listening to as it should some of the best music um uh, the best recorded music known to man for about a in week history. straight and and <laughs> it has it, it's enlightened me it's opened up my third eye um Mm. And I feel closer
1: connected to God because of it. It has definitely opened up my brown eye. There's no doubt about that. <laughs> At present, one? we're <laughs> wait, yeah, wait, wait. My ass. <laughs> okay. Well, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a band that had an album all about somebody's ass. Yeah,
0: they so yeah, they certainly did. We'll get to that. You want to tell the people uh, what we're talking
1: about this week? We're talking about the most misunderstood genre in the history of music, one that I think is only unpopular mostly because Pitchfork guys with like 17 girlfriends and a goatee think it's cool to bash on it. It's music that is somehow both for bullies and for people that were bullied, which is a fascinating dichotomy. I never we're going to be discussing nu metal. I That is a
0: perfect way to sum it up i've never even thought about it that way but it is it's for both the aggressor and the aggressed it's for (laughs) the oppressor and the oppressed
1: um and nothing is more illustrative than that than you know one of the bands we're going to talk about throughout is rage against the machine and 2020 was a very funny year in only the sense that people were realizing that rage against the machine was a political band (laughs) that tweet that tweet is infamous now It's legendary, and that goes to tell you really partially why new metal is so misunderstood, because there is, as you're going to discover, our fine listeners, something tangible and real at the core of it, but it's just been watered down and transformed in the, you know, 30 years since to where it's completely unrecognizable.
0: Yeah. So uh, first, we should at least talk about um, why we want to discuss new metal real quick and if it had any influence on us. I know. I think we've talked about it before. We might have talked about it on the show a few times, but we've certainly talked about it between us. Um, the ridiculous influence that new metal has had on our lives.
1: Yeah, it's kind of alarming. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I didn't really it,
0: it didn't necessarily click. There's been a few times in my life where I'm like, oh yeah, new metal definitely like influenced politics and and even just how i speak about things very crassly and stuff like that mm-hmm. um but it really wasn't until we brought it up to talk about it for this week and to do research on it that i was like oh my god um you can literally link like my political rattle- radicalization to like mm. the uh the history of nu metal uh very very uh shocking and i learned more about myself as we went through this
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah admittedly my familiarity with the genre started in the early 2000s when it was as you'll discover at home pretty much at its worst and that's because of the then wwf every big pay-per-view had a new metal theme song we're talking luminaries such as saliva limp biscuit stained pod Evanescence, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Linkin Park, yeah. and every single month I'd be like, this song goes hard. And then lesser known bands, like, let me know if you've heard of them, Chance. Trust Company. Nope, nope, that's slipped. Um, okay, no problem. Uh, Alter Bridge, you might yes, have heard of. Yes, of course, of course, Alter yeah, Bridge. The only good part of Creed, which is their guitarist, has his own band. And it's, surprise, way better than Creed. Oh, yeah. Not that that's Creed is the only band that actually does deserve the hate it gets, because they were insanely terrible <laughs>
0: like, you ever see them at the the super bowl halftime show
1: oh yes the lead singer yeah, that was
0: on like the um
1: that was a dallas cowboys thanksgiving day game and he was being flown down that was actually just after 9-11 <laughs> that was november of 2001
0: i just had a, uh, a great image of what they could do with him on the harness but anyways um they could have just yeah, come, Scott
1: staff they just
0: come, commemorate 9-11
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah this is a tribute to 9-11 not the victims we just really like the event yeah, it was really cool and we think very political we, stance we think creed
0: um really speaks to the moment you know um,
1: i just heard the news today <laughs> <laughs> that's what that song's about yeah, that is, i know it was written a year before but that's they it's about being on the Scott's, ground
0: floor And just like having a really low react, like a, like a late reaction to the actual events.
1: It's what that drill tweet is about where it's like, I'm in the bathroom. Hey, hurry up. 9-11's happening. One second. (laughs) I mean, Scott Stapp did believe that he was a CIA sleeper agent, so it's very possible he did have advanced knowledge of 9-11. He was a CIA sleeper agent, like confirmed. Definitely. That wouldn't surprise
0: me. Um yeah no uh i think wwf was also very interesting just to go on that more because it even had like almost proto uh new metal stuff and like i guess just before its heyday like it had like mm. um like Marilyn manson right like you could oh, yeah. you could probably throw that yep. in the mix it's certainly with its um the stylizing of new metal it's very similar and then mm. um like rob zombie like was used oh, in theme songs a they- lot
1: the WWF literally declared that Limp Bizkit, one of the t- subject bands today, was their favorite band of all time. Yeah. And Vince McMahon, the insane billionaire who runs it, his like three favorite bands were ACDC, Kid Rock, and Limp Bizkit. That's a horrible mix. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, it's really bad. to go to a party that he's DJing.
0: Actually, I'd probably really on, like pal. that.
1: What, you know, like back and block?
0: <laughs> <laughs> the other one was um, DX's theme song. was like by the
1: Rage Against the Machine rip off yeah
0: 100% thought it was Rage Against the Machine when I was like 7 years old
1: degenerate The band was called Chris Warren and the DX Band, so they <laughs> they tried to do a scuffed Rage Against the Machine, and they replaced Zach Delarocho with a white guy from like Massachusetts, which, which I think is, so, is also a perfect, which is yeah, that's the that's beautiful of where new metal went. <laughs> well, do you want to start us off, Jesse? I would love to. So for the first half of this episode, we're gonna look at some key moments and figures in the in the new metal movement and. Most of you that are familiar with new metal probably are familiar with it from the mid to late 1990s into the early 2000s. But like a lot of musical genres, you know, the roots were laid years and years in advance. We're talking all the way back into the 1980s. You could argue that even the punk movement before that was kind of like the progenitor of what
0: new metal would become. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. there was like... A there's hints of new metal throughout history. And that's, and I think because new metal is a blend of genres um, Mm -hmm. you can kind of, if you look at like the early groups, they'll always look back to um, pretty huge names before them that were Mm -hmm. influences on their music. This was not a genre of trying to be as original as possible. If anything, it was a genre as like an homage to previous artists.
1: And I would say, and correct me if I'm wrong or if you have another one to add in there, but from my research, it looked like there were kind of two main genres that like one main genre they drew influence from and then two contemporary genres that kind of merged together in the 1990s. So a lot of like new metal guys, we're talking like Fred Durst, uh, Jonathan Davis from Corn. like they all credit a lot of hip hop bands from the 1980s, including the Beastie Boys, NWA, Public Enemy, especially in the case of Rage Against the Machine. As being influential in what their sound would become, and then as new metal starts to break through in the 1990s, I'm not sure if you're aware of this, Chance, but in 1991 there was a pretty big movement in music that uh, was called grunge. Oh, I
0: must have missed that one.
1: Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so yeah, that went over I, that went over my head, I guess. I cannot overstate how awful, like, the American rock scene was from, like, 1985, really, until about 1991. We were in the heyday of hair metal. And I can understand some people that, like, hair metal is, like, a guilty pleasure. Yeah, hair but- metal hair, hair metal is good
0: if you're, like, fully irony poisoned because you can just yes. have a fucking blast. And it's, like, all these songs or- are about, like, cars and women and... Monsters. If you're on cocaine. If you're on a lot
1: of cocaine, yeah. If you are fucking gassed up as much as these guys are, then yeah, you know what? Hair metal rocks. But I think public opinion at the time was negative and public opinion now is perhaps even worse oh yeah
0: definitely I'm always surprised uh I think D. Snyder is still doing like a hair metal uh radio show every single week it's like it's got like a Friday night slot in Belleville I don't know where else but um (laughs) yeah yeah and and it's pretty brutal but at the same time like you listen to it and it doesn't matter what you put on because the whole genre is so similar that you can yeah, exactly. just kind of like zone out and have a good time.
1: I could not tell you the difference between White Snake, Motley Crue, or uh, Live. Before they had that song about the Oklahoma City bombings or whatever, mm-hmm. Live was a hair metal band and they were pretty <laughs> terrible. Yeah,
0: yeah. Pantera like was, the only, Pantera was yes. a hair metal band too. Um, Until they
1: added Dimebag Daryl and uh, fuck,
0: what's his name, the lead singer? Phil Anselmo.
1: Phil Anselmo. Then they completely transformed and were like, oh, we're just going to be extremely hard and thrash now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm not going to lie to you. I like Pantera. Oh, I love Pantera. I just hate
0: people who love Pantera. <laughs> Absolutely. That is correct.
1: You know what? And people who love Pantera also seem to hate Pantera because they wanted to kill Dimebag Daryl. <laughs> yeah. And uh, they
0: succeeded. Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, in the 90s gr- or in uh, 91, grunge oh, yeah. kind of got kicked off it was obviously a thing before it was Mm -hmm. it was a big underground scene in the late 80s but it wasn't until Nevermind got released by Nirvana that it it kind of got like launched into the stratosphere of the mainstream and everyone owned a copy of the album and everyone thought they were really cool and underground because they (laughs) owned a copy of the biggest album of the year
1: the most. The most pop, one of the most popular albums of all time people to yeah, this man. day
0: still think and act as if nirvana is like an underground unknown band even though it's easily one of the biggest
1: contemporary bands of our time and then spawned another of the biggest contemporary bands certainly of the 2000s it's yeah. like but at the time to be fair they it was like college rock grunge they were kind of you know boiling under the surface you did have a few crossover bands from college rock into mainstream mm-hmm. you know the biggest obviously being rem who went from being actual underground like nobody's heard of these guys to oh now we're going to sign like a 90 million dollar record contract yeah and make and, and there was middling music
0: yeah yeah and there was a lot of um like there was a lot of indie rock at the time too that mm. kind of gets overlooked um but that kind of added to the grunge movement. Um, people were doing these underground things and they were kind of blending like what we know as like maybe early two thousands indie rock stylings, which Mm -hmm. were more just like college rock at the time in the late eighties, uh, and kind of blending it with punk and just heavier sounds and kind of, uh, getting more aggressive, uh getting more introspective rather than kind of out there with like freak out styling stuff it was more about like um you know your own personal emotions and very much like a a gen x idea of society being very like plastic and how you can get um like a lot of themes of being successful without being happy right which i think um definitely influenced a
1: lot of the later uh new metal stuff um and i'm glad you mentioned that because yeah you can definitely trace a lot of roots back and the success of grunge and then at the same time it was like grunge on the rock charts and then gangster rap on the hip-hop charts yeah like the early 90s became it was these heavy heavy backlashes to in some cases consumer culture a lot of cases this idea of the american dream especially in gangster rap it's like well yeah the American dream might exist if you're white, mm-hmm. but, uh, I'm just getting murdered by the police at endless fucking hours all the time. Yeah. You had, and it's also, you had groups oh, like,
0: I've... um, like Snoop Dogg, you had, uh, Wu Tang, you had, Ooh. um, guys, even, even any of the native tongues groups, like, um, uh, tribe called quest and, mm-hmm. um, anything coming out of like New York, like there was. Even within hip hop, there was this dichotomy between like the party scene um, and mm-hmm. just kind of making music for people to like enjoy themselves too, like similar to like singles from Tupac and Biggie. Yes. And then there was also this uh, kind of like conscious, the original idea of woke music. Um, yes. And, and uh, you know, talking about real things that were. Uh, important to the black community at the time and and there would be crossover between the two right like it would it would change it up all the time Um someone who eventually became a member of the hip-hop community but at the time was not is uh, Ice-T and I
1: would love oh, to pivot <laughs> yes I want to just cover one last thing oh, because sure, I think sure. it's going to relate to this yeah yeah and in fact so the final two things I want to highlight from the 1980s, a lot of grunge, a lot of punk, and a lot of what would become nu metal was also, you could say, a response to almost a decade of Reaganism. Oh, yeah, 100%. Like, and alongside Reaganism, we had the panic, the moral panic over music. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And in fact, in 1992, body count by the same band body count one of the songs on that album kkk bitch which other than one line that makes me cringe (laughs) is otherwise a pretty good song is about tipper gore yep the spearhead of this you know obscenity movement in the music genre
0: yeah so if you don't know much about tipper gore that's al gore's wife right yes yeah she's a real bitch i can't fucking stand yeah anyways i hate her Um,
1: (laughs) i hate her husband too to be fair they both fucking suck so
0: it was the oh i forget what it was called but anyways they they ran a commission that was essentially to get you know the parental advisory stickers on a cd that we have now that wasn't a thing for a very long time there wasn't necessarily lots of um uh Warning to parents, I guess you could say, regarding like the contents of an album. Uh, and
1: the PMRC Parents Music Resource Center
0: that's what it was. The good old PMRC, love those guys. Um, Tipper Gore spearheaded that, saying that music was getting too extreme and it was necessary for she. At first wanted them taken off the shelves like she wanted it completely wiped. You couldn't buy these albums. And then she changed yep. her head, her mind and was like, OK, what if we just did a parental advisory thing? Right. The PMRC has a very long history, very interesting history. But people that rallied against the PMRC included people like, as I mentioned earlier, D. Snyder of uh, fuck, what's that band that he's in? Uh, Twisted Sister. Twisted Sister. Right. Yeah. Um, yep. we're not going to take it. We're
1: not take it. Yeah,
0: Fuck me. That's the one. Um, uh
1: Frank Zappa, Frank very Zappa, famously.
0: His was awesome. D. Snyder's Incredible. was also awesome. Um there was like
1: there was a ton of people John Denver actually yeah. uh was spoke out against the proposed censorship, mm-hmm. which is interesting when you look at who the the kind of music that they were pointing to and you'd have a lot of traditional music artists. For instance, Mike Love of the Beach Boys, yep, massive piece of shit. He was one of the few people to speak out in favor of the PMRC of course, at the time. Of course he was. Yeah, he's a big Trump guy. Yeah, are you kidding me? Mike
0: Mike Love is a fucking horrible, horrible man.
1: Um, I'll never forgive him for what he did to the Beach Boys. Yeah, hate fuck Kokomo. <laughs> absolutely, I fucking hate that. So but that's the kind of that's what the PMRC was for. They created the parental advisory stickers, and it was a massive moral panic. This was also around the time. Of, like, the satanic panic, so yep. you had a lot of other things looped into that. Yeah. It's not hard to see the more extreme and aggressive music of the early to late 1990s as being a direct response to both Reaganism and the attempts to censor music oh. throughout the 1980s. Yeah, musicians were incredibly upset, and it's,
0: yeah, like you said, it's it's no surprise that people started making even more extreme music as a response. And Such as? And that's where we get the track... <laughs> The single from Body Count's album. I remember, this is Ice-T, uh, an actor, uh, a hip-hop artist. He's on Law & Order He's on Law & Order. He, Law and, Order uh, and he released a single with his band Body Count called Cop Killer. This next record is dedicated to some personal friends of mine, the LAPD. For every cop that has ever taken advantage of somebody, beat them down or hurt them because they got long hair... Listen to the wrong kind of music, wrong color, whatever they thought was the reason to
1: do it. For every one of those fucking police, I'd like to take a pig out here in this parking lot and shoot him in their motherfucking face. Calculus! This track is insane. Oh, it's absolutely... Like it's shocking in the best way. Not in the sense of like the content, but the fact he's like, Yeah, I'm just gonna call my song Cop Killer, and it's gonna be <laughs> insanely catchy at that. Like I have been singing this to myself every single day. Oh, one hundred head.
0: Like uh, there's there's so many incredible lines <laughs> and and it's essentially about, you know,
1: it's it's a character song. It's
0: a character song in retaliation to such atrocities as Fred Hampton Uh, and Rodney King and Mm -hmm. just police brutality as a whole and being Mm -hmm. so upset that you want to do something about it and the thing to do is to murder police when you run into them on the street to me
1: the most telling line is cop killer better you than me and I think that is probably the key line in the entire thing it's an explicit screed against police brutality and there's so much righteous anger Throughout the entire song that I have never felt this anyway after listening to that song like I did hearing Cop Killer again. I went, Oh my
0: god. Oh, it's it's insane, right? It um and the this song was the single on the album and it it ended up getting popular on like campus radios and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. To the point where um the LAPD who the song is directed at <laughs> Um, Yeah, (laughs) um, the LAPD, the
1: chief at the time was name checked in the song.
0: Yeah, yeah. They put out a statement saying that they would arrest the members of Body Count if they ever played the track live. Um, And radio stations were also getting cease and desist orders from the LAPD for playing the Mm -hmm. album. And then if you sold the album in your store, there's instances of the police showing up saying we're not going to come if you call us ever again. uh, If you keep selling this album. So
1: yeah, like as if like yeah. Sorry, let me let me. I'm really gonna struggle when I need someone to be there seven hours after I've been shot in a robbery. Yeah, thanks guys. The real big loss. Yeah, I'm really
0: gonna need someone to do nothing while insurance <laughs> recoups my damages. Yeah, exactly. Um, so this track was like viral, I guess you could say. And
1: it should be noted that 1992 there was a rather big incident that took place in the city of los angeles Mm -hmm. the la riots partially inspired pop killer i mean much of the song had been written beforehand but obviously the parts about daryl gates and rodney king were extremely topical and the fact that the riots were going on while this song was on the charts also created a lot of controversy as well and to this
0: day you can't get
1: the track on fucking spotify yeah ridiculous which is insane you can get (laughs) Every other fucking song about violence. Yeah. But anything was, directed towards the
0: cops. I was showing you some horrible tracks that are on fucking yeah. Spotify, but you can't get cop killer by body count. Wanna like a quintessential punk hip hop crossover. You can't it's, get it.
1: it. Just objectively speaking, a tremendous song. Like mm-hmm. it goes so hard, the riff is driving and nonstop, and Ice-T's vocals are ridiculous. Yeah, and even the part that's
0: really cool with the snare drum uh, emulating a gun going off is very sweet. Yes.
1: (laughs) Yeah, that's amazing. I thought it was just a gun. I didn't realize that was a snare. Yeah, yeah, that's just the drummer. Um, That's amazing. Super sweet. 1992. We also got another song, surprise, surprise, about police brutality, but this one managed to stay on the charts, and the band that released it Who you may be familiar with, and I'm speaking to the listeners here, Rage Against the Machine. Not only did they manage to find success, a little bit of success with Killing in the Name of, a song explicitly about police brutality and white supremacy, but their first album ended up being a massive success. Some of those that work forces are the same that burn crosses. Some of those that work forces... Yeah, and their first album also, even just the cover itself. Yes, so the cover of Rage Against the Machine's debut album, also named Rage Against the Machine, is a very politically charged one featuring the image of a monk, Thich Quan Duc, who I believe, what was the exact reason for the self-immolation? I always Uh, slip up on this.
0: What it was was because it was
1: protesting uh, the Vietnam War. Um, perfect okay yeah Yeah. so the image which is an incredibly famous image was the one that they chose for the cover of their album and it is intense Mm -hmm. so it's an image
0: of um, the monk self-immolating in the middle of a square full of monks um, in front of like a car he has a gas can beside him and he's just sitting in the lotus position this was in 1963 and it won the world press photo of the year Um, there was only one journalist there at the time to take the photo. Just some interesting trivia. The monk Mm -hmm. went put out a press release saying, please show up at this square at this time because something big is going to happen. And only one journalist showed up because people didn't care about what the monks had to say. And then this image was taken. Um, This image being the cover of an album is uh, (sighs) insanity. It it is also so reflective of the... The feeling that rage is trying to get across about not only direct action, but how um, the way that things are currently set up and the way that things go on right now with things like um, white supremacy, with things like um, economic control, with things like uh, just government uh, corruption and and how capitalism just destroys mental health and, and bodily health. Um, the purpose of like the image on the cover is essentially showing like the feeling that you get when you feel like you can't do anything anymore It's like a direct call to direct action and the whole album is about that historically and like currently um, and even just doing things with music and but the interesting thing about the album is its blend of uh, punk and metal with uh, hip-hop which Mm -hmm. it does it more explicitly than even uh, Cop Killer did, Uh, even though these came out at the same time. Cop Killer, you could argue, is more of like a punk, hardcore, yeah, thrash metal type thing um, with some hip-hop elements involved. But this album, Rage Against the Machine's first album, the whole thing is almost more of a hip-hop album than it is a metal album, and that's something that Mm -hmm. defines the genre itself.
1: Yes, and an interesting thing about Rage Against the Machine, I was watching an interview, and they talk about their real breakthrough moment even before the first album is when Public Enemy asked them to open a set for them in uh, San Luis Obispo, which, could you imagine that show, Rage Against the Machine opening for Public Enemy? Man, I feel like I would self-implode. I would literally, yeah, die. (laughs) That is such an amazing lineup.
0: And Public Enemy at the time was... uh like huge huge. yeah massive and uh, again another band that ended up working with um anthrax to release another Mm -hmm. like proto new metal track with uh bring the noise which was massive and i think our first exposure between me and you was probably it being in the tony hawk soundtrack
1: yeah Um, absolutely (laughs) and and
0: i was just into it man like it was awesome it's so it's so brutal and and the lyrics are so uh, charged and aggressive mm-hmm. uh, but it has the groove, right? And instead of like groove metal where a lot of the times the vocals are obscured the vocals are in the forefront like that's what mm-hmm. you're listening for and then the music just backs that up and the same thing with Rage Against the Machine Um, the lyrics are definitely very clear and obvious what is being said even if it gets growly Um, and the music is more so the beat Uh, which is... Uh, you know again very telling of the genre and where it ended up going um but yeah that that album for me was a eye-opening experience um i didn't hear it until i was maybe eight or nine years old but even then i was like oh my god we're talking about very very serious things right now this is not an album to be taken lightly um and the track in itself killing in the name that being like a chart topper is insane. Um,
1: <laughs> and the fact that it topped the charts again in like 2009, although admittedly that was like a a joke thing in Britain because they didn't want the X Factor song to be number 1. Yeah. But the fact that they chose Killing in the Name of <laughs> is such a bizarre choice. Oh yeah, it's
0: it's wild. So that, that album entire, obviously Exactly. That album obviously took off and was hugely influential on what would become the new metal genre. After that, uh, another big point in nu metal was Korn's first album.
1: This is a band I had not really listened much to prior to doing research for this. Because I, by the time I came around and into the scene, Korn was like, seen as passé you know oh like definitely yeah the old man of the genre full of young angry
0: people yeah yeah um so in 94 corn released their first album um it was surprisingly a huge hit especially mm-hmm. after all the things with the pmrc and parental advisory this album even though it had a parental advisory sticker on it and some of the lyrics are the most like insane crass crude (laughs) lyrics ever i showed you a couple of tracks um it it is mind-boggling but this album became almost an album for young people that you would essentially hide from your parents um and be like no i'm not i wouldn't listen to that that's even that's crazy and it got a it got a ton of news notoriety too because the news was talking about how absurdly um i guess uh, provocative the lyrics were, and and but the thing with the provocative nature of it is, Korn's album is not unlike Rage Against the Machine, where it's hypercritical of society, politics, uh, capitalism, etc. Korn's album is more so critical of relationships, um, uh, parental uh, caretaking, I guess you could say, and like how parenting works as well as bullying like it's such a change in theme right um
1: yeah they've taken the issues like the high issues that you know rage and body count and public enemy had but they've they've hyper focused it on specific aspects of life within the system as opposed to the system itself so like you said you know parenting or you know bullying problems in school it's like an album for it's like an outcast album yep. in the sense except that it ended up being unbelievably successful. So it obviously had an audience, but I think part of that comes from the fact that the 1990s were very much seen as being this this decade of prominence and success to where, you know, the market's rebounded. You have a new quote unquote cool president in office. You know, we've we've thrown away the the decade of austerity and conservatism that our parents had with you know the era of reagan and george hw bush and then bands like corn and even a lot of the new metal bands after that were like no life still fucking sucks if you're not you know rich or popular
0: (laughs) hardcore gen x mentality where it wasn't even about like not being successful it's more about my mental health is still bad even if i am successful it doesn't matter yeah. Um, if
1: the world's so great, why do I feel so fucked up?
0: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which leads us to the next huge release. Um, oh, man. Which was uh, Limp Biscuit uh, so opening in, up in 19- for corn.
1: Exactly. So, 1995, Limp Biscuit, which I'm sure you are at least passingly familiar with, listeners. It's the guy with the red hat who sang Roland. There you go. <laughs> they form in. Jacksonville, Florida, which is perfect. Limp Biscuit is probably the most Florida band to have ever existed. Easily. And yes, they do indeed actually open for corn on a few shows, especially in the Florida area, and that helps them get a record deal with MCA Records in 1997. But between then, so from 96 to 98, we have more corn. I hope you're hungry. More (laughs) corn is on the menu as they have two. It's shocking how big of albums these two would become. Peachy, their second album is a top 5 debut and then their third album in 1998 Follow the Leader debuts at number 1. Insane for the music. They were they they, were, they had an episode on South Park. They were like yep. a mainstream cultural commodity. And let's remember as you noted in 1994 there was so much concern and uh, much ado about the anger in their first album. And now they're this yeah, mainstream crossover success.
0: And at this time, because they were uh, making their way to the charts, MTV and much music and things like that ended up playing more underground new metal acts on their uh, TV mm-hmm. stations or, or on their shows. That it, it was a really weird time for culture. I remember seeing um, the music video for Sugar by System of a Down on mtv and thinking whoa this is crazy heavy for the time and the music video is super nonsensical and it's all about you know the absurdity of the news media and stuff like that Mm -hmm. and it's like what is going on with music how is this the how is this the most popular thing right now um and right after corn hit the charts we had limp biscuit hitting the charts it's just
1: Limp Biscuit, they have two releases in 1999, which is crazy to me (laughs) that you have a band that puts out two albums about six months apart. Yeah. And the fact that both of these albums would become multi million sellers. The first one is Significant Other, which, yeah, pretty good album. It's all right. Admittedly, not the one I heard when I was a kid. Yeah, same. That honor would go to, and folks, I'm not making this title up. This is what they called it. Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water. And also, to give some
0: context, the cover art is just a stretched-ass <laughs> JPEG. Ladies and gentlemen, introducing the Chocolate Starfish and the Hot Dog Flavored Water! Like for a long time, for a long time, I thought I had like a bootleg (laughs) copy that someone just had like a terrible image of it. No, the official album cover is just a wide stretched JPEG that is blown to shit.
1: They're like ugly goblin baby. I don't really understand. (laughs) It's horrible. I can tell you that in 2001, so two years after the fact, the WWF had their biggest event ever, WrestleMania X7, and they had a fan contest and the contest was to make the best sign for the show that involves limp Mm (laughs) biscuit and the one that won was somebody who photoshopped a picture of stone cold steve austin bald man with goatee and the rock you all know who the rock is Mm -hmm. on the heads of some of those goblin babies (laughs) so (laughs) stupid that's what won oh my god but and the fact that that album two years later was still seen as being influential enough, certainly in the scenes and the demographics that would enjoy it to where it was the centerpiece of a contest, I think tells to the staying power of that album and of Limb- Limp Biscuit within the genre. Yeah. And, and again, the theme
0: of trying to be as provocative and anti-PMRC as possible was still mm-hmm. strong. There's a, a line in the first track that is... um he just keeps saying like all this shit is fucked up and a fucked up yeah. mom and your fucked up dad yeah. and, then, and then and then he's like that's 46 fucks in this fucked up rhyme. If I say fuck two more times
1: that's 46 fucks in this fucked up rhyme. Yeah. Like it, explicitly I know the exact, it's amazing. Explicitly
0: being like I'm only saying this because Maybe it's because of how I talk or maybe it's because the artistry behind it. You could argue that my hypothesis is it's because of censorship and Mm -hmm. uh, purposefully trying to make the most um, provocative and the most um, like trying to put in the most swear words in an album is so childish, but it's because of this anti-PMRC sentiment, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And then later on in that year... Was, yes. was the incredible and notorious Woodstock. Woodstock 99.
1: And I would like to say, Woodstock 99 took place about a month after Chocolate Starfish was released. Yeah. So yeah, at yeah. this point, the biggest band in the world, you could make a very solid argument, was Limp Bizkit. As such, they were chosen as one of the headliners for the entire event, a four-day festival where over 400,000 people descended on essentially a parking lot in New York state. Yeah. Yeah. And Woodstock 99 is also like infamous. I'm sure you're going to touch on that as well. Oh yeah. For a lot of
0: reasons. Yeah. Really quick. um, Woodstock 99 was notoriously a horrible audience. Um, It was a bunch of like, (laughs) sorry, it was a bunch of like degenerates I guess you could
1: say. (laughs) (laughs) That's probably the best word.
0: Um, And not in the sexual sense, maybe in the sexual sense, but it was mostly just Mm. like, yeah, incredibly juvenile, you could say, and it was high. It felt like a very bully-friendly show. Yeah, and you know, <laughs> Pri- I was telling you the story. Primus played, and they were going to play the track "My Name Is Mud," and they just in- announced that they were going to play that track, and people started throwing mud on the stage to the point uh-huh. where um, Les Claypool, the singer, he was like, "Please stop throwing mud at us."
1: The song is called My Name is Mud. But keep the mud to yourself, you son of a bitch. You know,
0: when you throw things up on
1: stage, it's a sign of small and insignificant genitalia.
0: Anyways, um, most bands that played that show were visibly upset. And Miserable, because like the <laughs> audience was Rage Against the Machine. <laughs> fucking horrible, and a uh, riot ended up breaking out during Limp mm-hmm. Biscuit's biggest track, "Break Stuff."
1: With a so, as you've heard, "Break Stuff" is a song that is absolutely rife with—you could say anger and frustration but i don't know how much of it is righteous and in the woodstock 99 set he says this song if you've if you've got problems with your work if you've got problems with your boss problems with a relationship problems with your parents and i went ah okay it always comes back to that (laughs) i see where this is going freddie yeah i think that's the big one with this crowd (laughs) (laughs) yeah it was all about um
0: like parental rebellion like that was huge at the time right And, and, you know, it's always been a part of a lot of generations histories. But in the late 90s and early 2000s, it was almost so bad that it was like a like an epidemic of people revolting against their parents rules. And Mm -hmm. in doing so, like almost the broader society of trying to be the outcast, like purposefully trying to be excluded from other people to separate yourself from what you saw as essentially a sham um, with how things were moving and how things were going. So the riot then happened and that did really good marketing for Limp Biscuit. not going to lie. On yes. one hand, it made it so that um, like parents and the news hated the band and hated new metal. But again, with that mentality of rebelling against those people, it launched it into this almost um, like they were rebel leaders, right? In they were outcasted. And it was music that your parents would hate if you listened to. And it would hate if you hung out with friends who listened to it and stuff like that, which made it ultimately way more popular than it deserved to be.
1: And 1999 represents probably the peak of new metal in the mainstream for popularity and also how risky the genre was willing to get. Woodstock 99 seems like the point where they're like, okay, we need to tone it down a bit. Not that you wouldn't get angry releases in the years that follow, but they tended to be more generalized and less controversial Mm -hmm. because we're a long ways away from killing in the name of ed cop killer. And now we're moving into the generation of like internalized rage or localized rage against your parents or your girlfriend or your teacher in some cases. Yeah. And, and and with
0: that in the following year, we had huge chart topping releases, uh, from other new metal acts that would follow that, um, i guess that theming right rather than the hyper political um we would get groups like disturbed with down with the sickness we would get um papa roach releasing last resort we got hybrid theory from lincoln park Um, the
1: biggest the biggest saw like album that year it is ridiculous
0: And if you if you look at how many games oh. like video games that song like any of those tracks were in it's insane. Um it was like, you heard it Hybrid everywhere
1: was all over the place and I'm not going to lie to you it's a pretty sick album. And it's I also really with enjoy it.
0: with the one song um well, like numb was huge. But what's okay. the what's the other one? Sorry. In the end was In the end Everywhere. Is that the one where pretty much every white guy now knows how to
1: rap because of that song? Yeah, yeah, yeah. 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 Mike Mike Shinoda, he's yep. he's bringing the fire. It starts with one thing,
0: I don't know why it doesn't even matter how hard you try. Keep that in mind. I to explain due time. Oh, Yeah, and and it was like hugely popular, easily accessible. There was nothing super controversial about it, which is very interesting based on the previous years, right, where people were trying to go as crude and crass as possible.
1: Like, yeah, in the end, was everywhere. They also had crawling, you know, mm-hmm. crawling in my skin. Yes, classic that was a big one. One step closer to the edge, and I'm, I'm about, about to break. break. And then my personal favorite song in the entire album, "Paper Cut," which is their opener, and also how they open most of their shows. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And, and that same year, we had Rage Against the Machine disband.
1: Oh, this is so sad. So in August of 2000, we're going to I, I want to talk about this because this is one of my favorite Rage Against the Machine moments. They end up having a concert outside the Democratic National Convention in August of 2000. They weren't originally approved to have that concert. But how did they get that time chance? Well, uh,
0: what it was is there was going to be like an MTV uh, promoted rock the vote type concert (laughs) to get kids to vote and it's very funny me and uh jesse were talking about it before recording that um they chose rage against the machine (laughs) to like inspire people to vote um because if anything (laughs) rage against the machine doesn't make you feel like voting is gonna do anything
1: a band that literally in Down Rodeo says, the ballot's dead, so a bullet's all I get. Yeah. <laughs> like, hmm, yeah. yeah. I wonder if they're going to encourage you to rock the vote or not.
0: Yeah. So so that was going to happen. That got canceled. Uh, instead, it was going to be a bunch of, like, Democratic leaders and speakers and stuff like that. Um, activists. Activists yeah. speaking outside at the DNC. And they gave up there was a number of speakers gave up their like hour and a bit long time slots that ended up going coinciding with the, I think the same time Bill Clinton was speaking. Yep, that's exactly right. And um, they gave up their time slots to let Rage Against the Machine do a show regardless. And that concert is actually insane to watch. I uh, definitely oh, recommend oh. watching it. It makes your blood fucking pump like you get hyped You get upset, you get angry, um, because the police and how they reacted to the concert was absolutely absurd, but also par for the course. Do you want to talk about
1: that, Jesse? So to put people into the scene, it is like six o'clock in August, the year 2000, and you're in the California sun. Rage Against the Machine. There's actually a really great uh, YouTube It's a 30 minute video of the concert, so they don't have the full concert, but they have, you know, a half hour condensed down and they go up there and they immediately from the get go, like 100 percent energy, 100 percent anger. And the YouTube video that has the concert shows all these shots of the crowd and you see people screaming, crying, like letting it all out. And every other minute or so you see shots of the cops getting closer and closer with their hands on their various quote-unquote anti-riot <laughs> prevention measures yeah. it's guns and they're shooting tear gas beanies fucking bean bags everything
0: yeah apparently a couple people threw rocks so then the police thought it was a good idea to say if you don't leave the scene in 15 minutes
1: we're gonna treat it as a hostile unrecognized gathering yeah, yeah. illegal gathering an illegal and it should gathering. also be noted the cops in the aftermath of that said, "Yeah, some people threw rocks, some threw bottles of quote chemicals at us, yeah. which was never founded." No, it was probably water <laughs> it was a bottles. a fucking lie. It was definitely a water bottle. They're like, it smelled like ammonia. One cop tried to say they were throwing a pipe-like uh, item at them, trying to imply that it's like a pipe bomb. Yeah,
0: and that so, it was ridiculous. And they did a press release after, which is very funny they did a press release after talking about it and they're literally talking to the journalists that they had just run over with their horses and like within shot with Um, like their tear gas and shit and they were like yeah we thought it was pretty good and pretty peaceful like we got everyone to disperse and it was all good and one of the journalists was like I was ran over by a horse and I told you yeah. that you were going to run me over and nobody listened to me. I'm a journalist. You're not supposed to do that. And the, the, the chief was just like, okay, next question. You're lying.
1: Injuries. We believe we used a great amount of restraint. Our response was strategic, measured, and appropriate for the situation. I, myself, as a press, was run down on the sidewalk by 15. Well, maybe sidewalk. you should have gotten out of the way when you were told. Next question. And I would like to add an addendum to my earlier statement. You can watch that concert on YouTube, but yeah, uh, content warning. It's going to look a lot like the demonstrations and the police violence from the last year and a half. Yep. So heads up. The second half, the first half is just the concert. But as it goes on, there's a really horrible shot of somebody underneath a horse mm-hmm. and they're like and they're like screaming in pain it's really really awful but as you mentioned rage against the machine do break up in october and it really was the beginning of the end because what happens in the following year well <laughs> we had to
0: say he <laughs> had crazy town release their album <laughs> the gift of game
1: oh it's so bad <laughs> and they that's the song that's the album where the song butterfly comes from yeah. a song that has absolutely zero new metal to it and in fact the riff that forms the bass it's a hip-hop song essentially mm-hmm. the riff that forms the bass was from john Frusciante of the chili peppers sexy sexy little thing this hip hop shit got me sprung with your tongue ring and i ain't gonna lie cuz your love gets me high so to keep you by my side there's is something that i won't try but the rest of that album is unbelievably bad including a song about rehab a song called revolving door which is about how the main dj uh swifty something i don't know swifty something like rick and morty uh it's about how he has sex with lots of girls. Oh man, yeah. The music got great. Um
0: it, we also had saliva. Saliva. <laughs> they do <laughs>
1: <laughs> another incredible
0: butt rock new metal band. Fucking with- horrible, man. What a time to be alive. Click, click, on the radio. Click, click,
1: One of the worst bands of all time, and I absolutely love them because they are incredibly bad like to an absurdly funny degree yeah oh yeah and then we also
0: in in good news when it comes to new metal, we had shocking down release toxicity um an album that like was closer to the new metal genre than what they had released Mm -hmm. prior uh it also was a huge chart topper it was massive everyone had a copy of the album somewhere and It was also back to the incredibly political aspect of new metal where, you know, the album starts with a track called prison song and the lyrics are, they want to build a prison for you and me to live in. And like every track on the album is about, uh, either police brutality or about totalitarianism or about censorship. Um, and very explicitly so Unlike you know the few years prior Where there might have been some more underground bands Doing it Or even Rage Against the Machine was releasing things But they never had as big of a hit As they did with their mm-hmm. first album System yeah. of a Down's Toxicity Was huge Like it was a massive album And again you could hear these tracks everywhere um, Especially tracks Like uh, Aerials And Chop Suey oh God, you
1: to Got the better way to shake up You wanted to why you leave the keys up on the table You wanted to quiet well, I don't think you trust In My oh, Ariel's I think Ariel's might be the best Like that Oh my god It was in everyone's yeah, MSN mentioned.
0: bio <laughs> It's like I'm, li- I'm listening to Ariel's right now <laughs> That takes me back Oh, yeah, oh, yeah man It's interesting because, again, we're talking about the parallels of this genre, and we had some of the worst albums when it comes to just talking about essentially nothing, alongside a release of one of the highly, like, one of the more dense political albums to be released of the year.
1: I think Toxicity really was the last gasp of explicitly political and popular nu metal, because something else happened in 2001 that completely inverted American culture and stop this trend towards anger and aggression you know yeah internally yeah the track and started the, to' the s- focus it outwards yeah
0: 2001 was a very important year obviously because the track bodies by drowning pool got released oh God the <laughs> body <laughs> <laughs>
1: Another fucking <laughs> dreadful song. And as I've learned from you, uh, why don't you explain this? There's a little piece of information <laughs> in the Google Doc that I am shocked by, but not surprised by, so, say.
0: So when there was an attas- assassination attempt on Gabby Giffords in 2011, um, the media, like the news, jumped on the fact that the shooter had liked a video of a, the American flag burning. That had a backing track of Bodies by Drowning Pool. God. And they were like, did this song cause this person to try to kill Gabby Giffords? (laughs) And so Drowning Pool came out and released a statement not even addressing the assassination attempt, really. They mostly just talked about how much they love the troops and how the song is actually just about mosh pits. Um, Again, this was in 2011, way past their heyday but 10
1: years on
0: yeah yeah, but but uh very interesting how the news and again it goes to what we were talking about as this is a genre of trying to be the outcast the news helped so much with that and even Mm -hmm. 10 years after something was released it was still like this
1: genre is dangerous this genre is corrupting the youth right In fact, Bodies would be a song that would be banned actually in 2001 for a few months because after 9-11, there was something called the Clear Channel Memorandum, Mm -hmm. which was a list of radio guidelines saying what songs you cannot play because they would either inflame tensions and passions in their listeners or because they had lyrics even remotely critical of the United States or lyrics even remotely similar To what people had seen on 9-11. Some of the songs on this list include Free Fallen by Tom Petty. Explicitly because he says he's free falling in it. (laughs) I'm not kidding. Uh, Bodies (laughs) by Drowning Pool. Because bodies are hitting the floor. Yes, yes. Uh, Famously, Clear Channel Memorandum said that Zero Rage Against the Machine song should be played on the radio. No, but yeah, you can play it at Gitmo. (laughs) Yeah, you just can't play it. In the aftermath. And speaking of in the aftermath, we saw the MTV All-Star Tribute, which was actually made before 9-11. It was an AIDS benefit song that featured all the big artists of the time. You've got Bono, you've got like Alicia Keys, you've got Fred Durst. That's right. Limp Bizkit made it into the MTV All-Star Tribute. But how I first saw it was in early 2002 when it was repurposed as a 9-11 tribute song. Wow. I think that explains American culture at the time pretty pretty succinctly. Yeah, retroactively being like, no, no, this was this wasn't about AIDS. And the music video, which you can see on YouTube, it isn't a like fan cut together thing. It's what they aired on MTV. It's just like shots of destruction in like New York City in complete rubble, while this really horrible cover of "Let's Get It" or sorry, uh, not "Let's Get It On." That'd be hilarious. That would be fucking uh, funny. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> Could you imagine let's get it on cover <laughs> for an AIDS? I've been re- yeah, with, Fre- with Fred Durst. I've been really trying. <laughs> uh, so, that I think sums up what living in a post 9 11 world really was all about, especially at the time. Yeah, everything was 2001 about 9/11. was a weird year, it was horrible. And 2002 was perhaps not just for new metal, but for all North American culture, even worse. 2002. This is now. Some people will say, "Oh, 2004." Like they still had hits in 2002. 2002 is the last year where new metal has any kind of cultural significance, and it is mostly defined by some of the worst releases in the genre's history. Easily, easily. Such as one of my least favorite songs of all time, called "I Stand Alone" by the band Godsmack, <laughs> which spent 14 weeks. In, like, the top ten on the rock charts. It's over three months. It's such a horrible track. (laughs) It is. I fucking hate that band, man. It's hard to even put into words how bad I Stand Alone is. It's a song you truly have to hear for yourself. You can listen to the first 30 seconds and understand why this is so bad. But... That was not the biggest new metal hit of the year. Oh, no. That honor went to the one and only Headstrong by Trapped. Oh, my God. <laughs> Which still has, like, a soft spot in my heart. Back A ridiculously stupid song that, yes, I do have a soft spot for it, and I do love the Kids Bop cover, <laughs> Yeah, which is somehow way better. Yeah, yeah. Trapped made waves last year for being very vocal Trump supporters. Uh, they would get into fights with people on Twitter, and they finally fired their lead singer, and the rest of the band was like, yeah, sorry. <laughs> I don't really like him. I don't know what his problem is.
0: Yeah, they were posting psycho shit. Yeah, about like, legit like,
1: like insurrection, capital storming stuff. Yeah, and know? like
0: Trump coming back and like Biden. <laughs> not, stuff. Yeah, Biden not being the real
1: president and stuff like that. I actually heard they were present at Hillary Clinton's execution at Gitmo, the one that we <laughs> talked about a few months back. <laughs> they played heads. It was they, had, they played headstrong <laughs> while she was getting hanged. <laughs> they were the ones... It wasn't a bunch of generals. It was all the members of Trapped that had the red button that would hang Hillary Clinton. They did a funny version, though. It was like, headstrong,
0: I'll suck you off. <laughs> they hate when you rewrite the lyrics to their
1: songs. I'm not going to
0: lie to you. Good. If I get a message from Trapped, I would, that would make my day.
1: Dad strong, I'll suck his dong. <laughs> yeah. yeah All-timer. Just a terrible year for new metal. Mm-hmm. And it really it serves as a nice decade looking back point. We're 10 years on from when you could argue the genre really began. We started with rage against the machine and body count. And we ended up with God smack stained seven dust Evanescence, trapped. Okay. Evanescence is sweet. Though. Okay.
0: Evanescence is sweet, but arguably <laughs> not is as sweet
1: as no. Body and also I and wouldn't even rage against, the I wouldn't machine. even call them like a new metal band. I would call Evanescence like, They were their own genre. They were kind of like meatloaf, but with a 16-year-old girl as the lead singer. (laughs) Or like they had this gothic influence, Mm -hmm. but with like synthesizers. Yeah. And they would have their biggest hit in 2003 with Bring Me to Life, another hilarious song that was the Daredevil theme song. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. I will never forget about that. I guess the question is, what? do you think happened to New Metal, Chance? <laughs> what do I think happened? Yeah, we'll, we'll both cover this, but why, sure. don't you, why don't you start us off?
0: Um, So, like we were saying, it, it's pretty insane that there was such a fork uh, between where New Metal had started with its incredible, like, anti-capitalist, anti-police sentiments and how it got to having some artists still doing that and holding on to that. But any new yeah. artist ended up more so just talking about like how much they hate their parents and shit. Yeah. Um And I think what happened was that the, I was saying earlier, the Gen X mentality has that inherent in it where it will go from being critical of very large ideas to more so being very um self-centered and more so critical of things like personal relationships and um you know parental parents and people that you're supposed to look up to and things like that rather than the bigger picture that it originally was hypercritical of um and I think I think it it's just an issue with it can be an issue with a lot of genres, but I think new metal has that hardcore Gen X mentality to the point where it's so obvious that that's what happened, right? That it went from looking at the bigger picture to looking more inward That um, I don't know if it's a curse of the Gen Xers, but it's, it's how it seems to be with most of their art influence. Uh, what
1: about you? I think that is probably the closest uh, or the most accurate understanding of what happened. But I'm going to look at a couple things in particular. I'm going to point out two things. One is actually related to dogs. We're going to some more dog content this week. Oh, hell yeah. So are you familiar with the process of pure breeding with dogs? Yeah, of course. And you know how after long enough of pure breeding, you just get like horrible inbreds? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So the new metal genre, they had, you know, a very select source of influences like public enemy uh you know anthrax pantera we've talked about some of them Mm -hmm. and what happens is when you try and pay tribute to those acts without really adding anything else into the fold you get kind of like a pure breed generation where limp biscuit is like oh i love public enemy uh and you know i love i love pantera we're gonna we're gonna do that and we're not gonna really look to create anything else from it and then what they get is, yeah, this watered-down version. And that watered-down version, they realize, oh, we don't really have anything interesting to say. Well, what can we write about? Well, uh we're from Florida, and we love just talking about like having sex and fighting each other. Yeah. So now you've lost the message, and you've only kind of imitated the sound. And then that just kind of keeps passing itself down and down. And then I think the other thing to highlight is, New Metal takes a very drastic turn-off in 2001, both pre and especially post 9-11, because you weren't allowed to make angry music. It literally couldn't be played on the air after 9-11. So what ends up happening is you have to kind of tone yourself down and make yourself more mainstream to try and survive. And then surprise, surprise, when you start doing that, your music stops connecting with people on that broader scale and after 2001, the the genre would dwindle down to like maybe two or three big bands, and everybody else just slowly falling apart. Mm-hmm. So it's it's the classic process in music of the genre being distilled and oversaturated, combined with the fact that you just couldn't talk about those things if you wanted to find any kind of chart success.
0: Yeah, I think the the distillation process of new metal is unique in that it happened so quickly. Like we, we went over the span of a decade and 10 years it
1: completely <laughs> flipped on its head. Oh yeah. Um We, and I, we went from rage against the machine to trapped like that tells you all you need to know. That's the Overton window of both politics and music and a fucking genre swinging. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And I, and I think it, that in itself is unique to the new metal experience. And I think, I think you're right. I think nine 11 definitely had, a huge hand in that. Um, it
1: destroyed everyone in the United States's brain as well. Yeah, like, pretty much. <laughs> it's not just new metal. All music became interminable. Yeah. And, like just awful at the time. Yeah. So I had another
0: uh, couple of questions for you that I want to yes. discuss. One of them is why do we why do we as a as a two people who have been influenced by new metal think that it had such a huge cultural impact?
1: I think part of it comes down to the feeling of personal isolation and alienation and it's something you can certainly see in the later music we you talked about how the gen x mindset went from looking at the broader picture to looking at the individual i think a lot of the music is geared towards that feeling of isolation you know you feel isolated from your parents you feel isolated from your peers at school you feel isolated even in your you know personal romantic relationship so i think we had you know The Gen Xers and then the early millennials feeling this intense isolation that could be caused, you could say, partially from the true globalization of capitalism. Let's not forget the Soviet Union and the only actual challenge to the capitalist order fell in the early 1990s. And it's like, well, we don't have a choice anymore. We have to work a fucking nine to five job somewhere we hate for the rest of our lives until we die We don't have any money or anything to look forward to. The American dream is now unattainable. It's like you're you're just kind of raging into yourself. And in the case of some people, raging your fist into the drywall next to you. (laughs) So for me, that's what I think it was. I think it was a generation of just isolated and alienated people that were fucked up and then became even more fucked up when the world turned on its head and America became, you know... (laughs) what it became mm-hmm. in the early two thousands. And one
0: of the things too that we didn't even really talk about was like the fashion of
1: New Metal oh,
0: with man. like corn like Rage Against the Machine, not necessarily the no. forefront of fashion. Most of the no. time if you look at like their audience and stuff like that, it's a lot of just punks wearing like their jackets and stuff like that. But corn, what and limp biscuit, but mostly corn Made, like, wearing Adidas shorts and, like, track suits a hugely popular (laughs) thing. If you were a fucking weirdo.
1: Yeah, wearing your basketball shorts to your grandma's funeral. Yeah. That was a Limp Bizkit influence. Yeah,
0: yeah. And, like, corn was uh, a bunch of dudes with dreadlocks, right? Like, it's literally... White guys. Yeah.
1: Dreadlocks. Five
0: guys all having dreadlocks, uh, talking about how much their parents hate them. So, like uh i the the fashion sense of new metal making like everyone started wearing baggy clothes almost like it was from gangster rap except you're listening to these people complain about you know how much they hate their parents um was hugely um popular and I think it's because of you know gangster rap and stuff like that was was also like such a Big part of like the mainstream music that it kind of had to adapt for like the Kyle, like white boy. Mm-hmm. And so, in doing that, the adaption process of that fashion was you know, wearing your Adidas shorts and having like either crazy long hair or dreadlocks and stuff like that.
1: Um, it was, it was yeah, the white, like a very... it was the whitewashing of like, um, exactly. hip hop, right. Which is inevitable. All like capitalism is a monoculture. So even like the cultural enclaves and cultural flare-ups eventually get subsumed into, you know, the larger picture of capital. And it was a very much intentional choice of trying to look like you weren't trying to pick out an outfit, you know? Where it's like, oh, I just threw on whatever. But a lot of these bands, maybe not so much corn, but Limp Bizkit certainly, probably had people, you know, saying, Hey, you gotta wear this today, or you need to look like this for the mm-hmm, video. Mm-hmm. It was very shallow. Corn. I don't have any doubt. De- they just wore whatever. Yeah, there's... I don't think they own... They're psychos. A change of clothes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> they just showed up. Yeah. Rage Against the Machine, like, you watch a concert, and, like, Tom Morello's wearing, like, a bowling shirt. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah. Well, what's going on
0: here? Yeah, it's not the same. Uh, <laughs> whereas Limp Bizkit, which was, like, definitely, like, formulated, I think they were signed to Warner um yeah they had teams to make sure that they were wearing the correct outfits even their guitar player would wear like crazy masks and like yeah west borland and he would like be blue a lot of the time (laughs) um
1: (laughs) this is the blue man he he was the
0: original blue man and uh but the rest of the band you know they were wearing like baggy khaki shorts and like high top Mm -hmm. uh Shoes, Brand with new, like, yeah, like, yeah, like white shoes with like pristine high socks and like baggy jerseys and stuff like
1: that. For god's sakes, Fred Durst had dancers dressed like him in a video. You can't tell me that his look was just like casual. It's like, no, he had an entire group of like eight women wearing the exact same thing with choreography. Mm-hmm. Like, this is not a counterculture thing anymore. This is the culture, yeah, yeah, exactly.
0: Um, I think. Uh, like, Why do you think That new metal became A, a voice for like The oppressors rather than the oppressed
1: Uh, Because most people At least in the sense of when they listen to Rage Against the Machine or any of the bands that were Actually political don't pay attention to the words Either because they don't understand them or they don't Care and they just hear heavy riffs And you know scratch bass and are like Oh this is sick or in the case Of bands like Drowning Pool And Disturbed uh, it's like, oh yeah, they're so completely milk toast on their take that your their music can be interpreted anyway. Disturbed did a cover of "Land of Confusion," the Genesis song, mm-hmm. and somehow the version made in nineteen like eighty six was more political and like cutting than the one made in two thousand and two. It's clear that Disturbed did not have anything to say about the Land of Confusion. They just liked the original song and wanted an excuse to have a cartoon mascot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I was uh, I was thinking about back to what I was saying about like
0: the whitewashing of hip hop, right? And I think that also has a huge hand in this, um, in it being a, or ending up being like a voice for the far right. Like you 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 hear cops listening to Godsmack, right? And of course. and you hear cops like loving Rage Against the Machine, um, or you know, uh, probably not Corn.
1: <laughs> no, that'd be great, though. I'd love to meet the Corn Cop. Yeah, <laughs> Corn Cop pipe and a button nose. I mean, they probably like the song. Well, the F slur song they have. <laughs> they probably listen they probably to that. Do like that song? Not gonna lie. They don't. They
0: don't understand it. Or their their later stuff where Corn did an album with Skrillex that was Uh-oh. horrible. <laughs> and I bought it when oh, it came no. out. Yeah. They also did this.
1: They also did a song and advertising for the PS3 game Haze. Which did not go well. Yeah. They
0: did a music video, Twisted Transistor, and I'm pretty sure Snoop Dogg is in it. Yeah. Yeah. So it's like the whitewashing of hip hop is there. And I think that's what cops like because there's this level of irony to it when you have a bunch of white people wearing like basketball clothes and jerseys and stuff like that, that it kind of takes the power away from like black culture. Right. Like it's their way of diminishing um, black culture, whether they think about it consciously or not. But it is because it's now saying I can wear these things that you've been wearing for a long time because a bunch of white people are now doing it. And and I think there's an appeal to that for people that have an inherent hatred of minorities Um, when it becomes let's co-opt what you're doing and turn it into something that is just fashionable for like teen boys and police officers and stuff like that there's a a level of power where it's like i've just turned your culture into a fashion statement and therefore that culture has less meaning i think there's um like a level of co-opting power that is unconscious or or you know not explicit but it's definitely there that i think is an appeal to these people because it's the closest they can get to actually being the people that they hate
1: that is a fascinating i think that's wow that's pretty much bang on i would love to hear they've got to reclaim the song cop killer and they've got to write it about like cop kisser i'd love to hear that (laughs) that's that's the final step like your mama's grieving kisser Kisser. Who do you think would do Cop Kisser? What? It doesn't have to be a new metal artist. It could be anybody. Who do you think would on do Cop Kisser? You yeah. You know who it would be? Like... It would be
0: fucking um, Van Morrison.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's true. He made a lot of anti mask music. Yeah, I he could did. see it.
0: He'd made a whole wham, album. Wham. He only made a two and a half hour, like, double LP where every oh track is about anti mask, Trump, what? or how. Um, uh, like being a man trying to get custody of your child is very difficult.
1: <laughs> Damn, yeah, yeah, it's horrible. He, I'm glad I always thought he was dreadful, like musically, <laughs> and it turns out, yeah, he's dreadful personally as well. Oh, yeah, he's like, it's like Morrissey, good musician, terrible everywhere else. So Van Morrison, none of those issues. He sucked then. He sucks even more now. <laughs> so
0: the I could see the that. last question I have for you is more directed at ourselves why do you think new metal had an appeal to dumb guy himbos like us when we were like had mushy brains as young uh children and like young teenagers where do you where do you think the, that came from because the whole time i was listening to this music i was having a fucking blast even if i hated it and i'm yeah, wondering what what is the appeal
1: so for me a lot of the terrible stuff is just nostalgia. It's like, I heard it when I was seven years old and I was like, this is so epic. Yeah. Especially <laughs> since it was mostly set to WWF highlights. So part yeah. of it for me is that, however, I didn't discover rage against the machine. And by that, I mean, really listened to them until I was in high school. And for me, the appeal was like, Oh yeah, not a, the musicality of a lot of these songs is just tremendous. Like it goes fucking hard. Yeah. But it's also like, Oh, I can, you know, relate to this feeling of, being fucking furious at, you know, this country and this government for essentially just selling out my future to, you know, make more plastic flags in like Myanmar. It's mm-hmm. like there was very much a sense of anger. And of course, also being a teenager, you just feel angry and fucked up all the time, anyways. But I think that's part of it for me. Like the good stuff holds up because it's just well made and has that righteous energy to it and the bad stuff I appreciate because I heard it when I had, yeah, even more holes in my brain than I do now.
0: (laughs) Yeah. 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 I think you're, I think you're right. I think there's, um, a level of aggression that we've talked about before that goes unaddressed with just being alive and being, um, even mildly political minded, um, Mm -hmm. that gets, you get told that it's like uncouth, or that it's um, it's not the correct way to deal with things by being angry. And that the most logical way to deal with things is to take your emotion out of it. And I think that, you know, we've talked about this before on the show, how being angry is okay. And I think with a band like Rage Against the Machine, and even Korn and System of a Down and Limp Biscuit the idea that being angry is okay because it's a natural feeling. I think Mm -hmm. obviously some bands did a better job at expressing where that (laughs) anger might be coming from, uh, with more of the political (laughs) stuff rather than I just hate my parents. Uh, but I think a lot of the appeal comes down to, Oh my God, these people understand the frustration that is being alive and that exists inherently in just existing. And that I think that anger a lot of the time doesn't get the appropriate attention that it needs or recognition as uh, as being reasonable because it's usually told to be it's unreasonable and that there's reasonable ways to do things that, you know, take some time and, and think things out and, and, you know, work it out with yourself and maybe write a letter and burn it or something rather than. Saying to you. Hey it's okay that you're upset. I'm upset too. And here's why. I think there is an emotional appeal to that. That before with uh, like metal acts and stuff like that. And even hip hop was always there. But I think new metal is like the distilled version of that. um, Mm -hmm. Where it gets to such an extreme. That it becomes almost laughable. But at the same time very genuine um and even when you have things like horrible tracks like i stand alone and headstrong (laughs) and shit like that um there's still this level of connection of vulnerability being like people will tell you this isn't okay but i'm telling you that it is okay and that being angry is something that could be utilized and something that can kind of be relished in to have a positive and doesn't always have to be incredibly negative, even though it is a negative emotion. So I think, I think the appeal and like why it became so, you know, the politics aside, why it became so um, appealing was because it, it spoke to you personally as a person and as a listener saying, this is okay. And that this isn't strange to feel this way. Um, and I think that's where like outcast music has its has its place in like the emotional realm and the emotional development of like a young hold up fucking himbo
1: brain to quote Zach Delarocha, Your anger is a gift. And I, I think you're completely bang on. And I think this music has room to resonate today because people are probably feeling angrier and certainly. Are more understanding of the system that is oppressing them now more than ever. There needs to be more new metal
0: throwback bands that actually yeah, take up go. the reins of like the political part of it rather than the fucking pure
1: himbo Kyle punching <laughs> yeah. holes in drywall side of it. Because there's been enough of that. There's been Phil yeah. <laughs> eight libraries of Congress. It's time to get back to, you know, actual meaningful militant music yeah. made by people that are angry and, People that have something to say. I mean, who knows, though? Who knows? Yeah, who knows what's going to come as a genre? <laughs> I don't think it's coming back. <laughs> yeah, I don't think new metal's coming back. It's uh, it's about as dead as dead gets. Yeah. But maybe we'll get something cool that spirals off from it. A newer new metal. Mm-hmm. And we'll get that 10-year cycle where it's good for about six of them. <laughs> yeah, and then it'll just go to shit. And, and then 9-11 will we get we'll Limp 2. Oh, now, okay, it wouldn't be all bad. 9-12. Yeah, that's <laughs> 9, 11 2 9 11, 3 <laughs>
0: Alright Jesse We'll see you guys next week Thank you for tuning in to episode 69 The yeah. sex number yeah. Yeah. Get him